Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Hi, it's me. Um, I've got something to say, and can you just promise to listen without interrupting me or anything? Okay, so last night when I complained about your refrigerator being too loud and it turned into a fight about the way I look at the figure skaters, and even though I don't even find that kind of person attractive, I understood where you're coming from because I was the one who got mad when we watched The Year of Living Dangerously and your mouth was hanging open the whole time at Sigourney Weaver. But then you said your mouth was hanging open because of the stitches from oral surgery, but that's not the point. The point is that I know you think what I tweeted about us was an invasion of your privacy, but I just have a very different relationship to social media than you do. And I was just saying that it was very funny that the cop who stopped you for the broken headlight was somebody I used to date. And then you had the headlight fixed at a shop run by your ex. So I tweeted it, and we fought, and you threw the WNPR owl mug at me. And I know we had really, really great makeup sex afterwards, but love is something you have to work at. And I don't want this to fester just because I didn't slog through all the subtexts here. You know what I mean? Um, is this 860-555-1716? The pizza place on New Park? I've been meaning to try you guys out. Can I get a small uh, with pepperoni and extra onions? And could you just forget everything I just said? Oh, I'm sure you have. And, you know, we're working on it. It's just, you know, communication. So it'll be fine. Thank you. And here's a show about the paradoxes and absurdities of modern love. And now, by process of elimination, he's figured out the night he got Lil' Kim pregnant. Colin McEnroe. Well, there's 24 hours I can't account for. It had to have happened then. I, I read about it today, and, and that's my only possible explanation. We're going to talk about love today, and this is um, it's a very uh, interesting uh, place that I think we're going to go here. Uh, we're talking talking with two authors. You know, I, there's an old joke about uh, two two old men who have the same argument every day. One of them says life is just uh, one damn thing after the other, and the other one says. Uh, life is just the same damn thing all the time. Um, and in some ways, that's maybe a, a little bit of what we might rub up against today in this conversation about love. So let me tell you about who's here. Uh, in just a second, you're going to meet Dan Jones. Uh, he's the author of Love Illuminated, exploring life's most mystifying subject with the help of 50,000 strangers. Um, to that end, he's the editor uh, of the Modern Love column in the New York Times, which many of us turn to rather early in our perusals of the New York Times on Sunday mornings. Um, and so he has, in fact, screened 50,000 submissions uh, from people who want their essays published, um, which has given him kind of an, an interesting window, anyway, in a certain kind of, of yearning and a certain kind of person. We're also going to be talking to Laura Kipnis. She's the author, uh, most recently, of Against Love, a Polemic, 
She joins us from Argo Studios in New York City. And um, so, Laura Kipnis, I think I'm going to start with you and um, and, and just um, get you a little bit to, to summarize this argument. But uh, if we were to sort of go to my the stupid joke that I just cited at the beginning, uh, either love is just one damn thing after another or it's the same damn thing all the time. In a way, your book kind of suggests that it is the same damn thing all the time or, or that that it is so monolithically oppressive at times that it begins to resemble, uh, to use your analogy, a gulag. So, so, but, but do a better job than I'm doing right now to summarize your, the central thesis uh, that you're laying out here. Okay, well, I'll give it a try. Um, I should say, first of all, the title Against Love is sort of, um, I, when I thought of that title, I just had to use it because it struck me as so funny. But the book is not really against love. I mean, it's a critique of the conventions of modern coupledom. And one of the things that I think happens is, like, as you say, the routinization and the same argument over and over and the kind of shtick that couples get into – but also the ways that people end up policing each other and creating these domestic gulags, as I call them, because part of what happens in modern love is people are so anxiety-afflicted about the thing ending, and um, the new conventions of intimacy are so devoted to policing another person into repressing whatever stray des desires they have so that the other person in the couple will feel more secure about the couple, that people end up living these really constricted and mutually policing lives. So it's not that I'm against love, is that I wanted to take a hard look at the conventions of domestic coupledom and the ways that there's so much pressure for us to fit ourselves into these, um, you know, uniform arrangements as opposed to figuring out what works for, you know, every different person and couple. One thing that doesn't seem to change very much is us wanting something that we would call love. I mean, it's it's hard even to pin down what it is that we mean by that word. In fact, let's um, – Let's play a little clip uh, as long as we're going the comedy route uh, from, and the old joke route from Annie Hall. Uh, this is Woody Allen right at the end of the movie. Oh, you don't have that one. She, she has no idea where that is. All right, we'll play that later. So instead, I, what, what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring uh, Dan Jones into this conversation too. As I said, he is the editor of um, uh, of Modern Love and, and the author of Love Illuminated. So um, Dan Jones, uh, listening to Laura Kipnis talk, now – one of the things that I take away from your book is that um, that there isn't really kind of a uniformity necessarily of of expectation from love. I mean, having read 50,000 or scanned 50,000 submissions from people about love, I would assume that one of the conclusions you've drawn is not everybody wants the same thing? Uh, well, I think there's a uniform high expectation. And I think that the expectations are you know, higher higher than they used to be. You know, marriage had many more practical aspects, aspects in the past, and now it's about sort of, you know, all those practical aspects rolled into soulmate for life, rolled into satisfying sexual partner for life, um, you know, someone who gets your sense of humor, someone who's kind to you all the time and takes and takes care of you. And these expectations are uniform and sort of crushing <laughs> from what I've seen. I feel like I should be singing Being Alive by Sondheim in the background, <laughs> uh, someone to hold me too close. Um, exactly. Oh, well, I mean, Laura Kipnis, do you, I assume that you are a at least semi-regular reader of the Modern Love column in the New York Times. Oh, I'm so addicted to it, yes. 
So, so what do you? I don't f- believe it. Could I say <laughs> that I don't believe the truth status of these columns? Um, but I read them regularly. Well, what do you mean you don't believe them? I think that um, you know. To talk about your love life or your marriage in the first person in the New York Times demands a certain kind of performance. And, I, you know, I think I, I would like to make a plea for n- people writing more about marriage and couple them not in the first person because I think that's too constricting. Um, there's idealization. I think there are failures of self-knowledge involved. So, you know, we get something, but it's, you know, these kind of uh, polished essays as opposed to, I think, you know, real insight into what happens in people's lives. I, I, I will say that reading your book, I, I of course, curiosity began to mount uh, in me as to, well, who is Laura Kipnis and what's, what are her experiences <laughs> about this? And, and Who is she indeed? And, you, and you're a little stingy with that. Is that for that reason? <laughs> Yeah, because I felt that this book, there's no first person. It's all second person, you know, we and you. So I was kind of writing from the collective id, I think. And I felt like that gave me more freedom as a writer. And also I write as a social critic. I mean, and as an observer of other people's uh, couples more than my own. But I would be terrified to write about my love life in the New York Times. And, you know, my poor boyfriend has got enough to contend with without that. Dan Jones, what about that? I mean, it is I, I know a number of the people whom you've published. I mean, most of them are writers. So that's what they do is mm-hmm. write. Uh, and, and that's part of it. But w- what do you think is pushing maybe some of the people who are not career writers to share the stories that they share? Well, I think they're trying to figure something out. Mm-hmm. And they are in a I mean, you know, let's face it, we learn through writing. Uh, I learned uh, what I had sort of understood or come to understand um, about relationships from sort of bathing in these people's stories for eight years when I started the book. Um, I didn't really know what I knew about it until I sat down and tried to make sense of it in a book and pull all these stories together and go over them and see what people were struggling with and see what the trends were and see how technology was affecting relationships. And I think it's the same impulse with, um, with writers who are trying to figure out what what's happening? What is what is the the dilemma that they're struggling with, and what are the competing interests, and what can they learn through the process of sort of dissecting their own lives? Um, I think for a lot of us, um, it's it's uh, and reading Laura's book and reading your book. I mean, one of the questions I think everybody has is how how do I achieve this status that everybody seems to want, which is, you know, to be in a couple, to be part of a couple, uh, uh, fully real, realized, mutually uh, reinforcing couple, and, and not lose this other spark. And this is very much present in, in Laura's book, this whole idea of, of self-exploration and, and being able to constantly be asking questions about one's own self. You know, how, how do I not fall into a certain kind of numbness? Uh, we have located our Woody Allen uh, clips, and we're going to uh, play another clip from Annie Hall, in which he, he, he's trying to figure this out right now. Like, how do people do it? And he sees a, a happy-looking couple on the street. You look like a very happy couple. Um, are you? Yeah. Yeah? So, so how, how do you account for it? Oh... Uh... I'm very shallow and empty, and I have no ideas and nothing interesting to say. And I'm exactly the same way. I see. Well, that's very interesting. So you've managed to work out something, huh? 
Okay, so that's the absolute worst prejudice about what it takes to uh, to sort of maintain a long, long, long-term relationship. But Jan, Dan Jones, as you look at everything coming over your transom, uh, I, I'm assuming you see other answers besides that one. Well, I, you know, I like people who are engaged in the struggle. Um, I don't find find those kinds of conflicts uh, depressing or evidence that we're sort of heading in, you know, a bad direction. Um, it's, I mean, one thing that's interesting to me is how we try to do relationships better than they were done in the past. And, you know, we look at our parents' relationship and see its shortfalls and think, well, we're going to do better than that. And we see our relationship with our parents and say, well, we're going to have a better relationship with our children than they had with us. And there's this constant sort of sense of self-improvement. Again, that's always upping the ante in terms of how much we expect of ourselves um, and th- there's a way that love sort of scrambles that equation. There's, you know, getting along with another person. If we're going to do this monogamy thing that so many people seem um, committed to, uh, there's a way of being with another person for 20, 30, 40 years that is going to disappoint you <laughs> and make you feel trapped. And um, and then there there can be joys associated with that kind of long-term relationship that that, uh, you know, come to fill some of those gaps of other disappointment, whether it's a passion or whatever. Um, But, you know, the people I hear from are struggling and struggling and struggling with these things. And there's something admirable to me about the struggle, especially those who sort of just, you know, continue to work at it and work at it through adding, you know, new routines to the relationships and whatever. Like, there's, it's um, heartening in a way. Laura Kipnis, Dan Jones says, you know, uh, we, we modern people have this notion that we, we need to do it better somehow, that love and, and coupledom uh, needs to be better than it was in, in previous generations. On the other hand, on public radio, we have this thing called StoryCorps, and it seems to me every time I hear StoryCorps, it's some couple, and they've been married together, been married for, you know, 75 years or something, and, and they knew it right away, and they fell in love when they were you know, 14 or something, and it's always been great. And I mean, so it's not always that, but I hear so many of those. Um, and, and and what I'm hearing in those uh, are often the echoes of a simpler time where maybe expectations for individual self-realization weren't what they are now. Maybe maybe what people expected from love and coupled them and being a couple is is less than what we expect now, expect now, but maybe they got more out of it. Um, I don't know. How do you react to that? Well, I think those stories of the couple together for, you know, 50, 60 years are very sweet and touching. And I think that you can luck into a situation where it does work out with someone. But this language of working at it that Dan mentioned, and I have a lot of fun with in Against Love, because this idea that you have to work at your relationship and you have to work at your job and, you know, if things aren't working, you're just not working hard enough at it. And then you have to go to the gym and work out some more. You know, it's like, when are we not working? And so this, uh, you know, I kind of talk about overwork, like at what point does it become overwork? And I, you know, like to just introduce that as a question, how much are we supposed to work at it in life? And at what point does the pleasure start? So I don't think it, you know, can't happen that you 
uh, have the mating for life and you're deliriously happy with it. But the for life part, you know, as Dan says, I mean, people are living much longer. And at the same time, these expectations of what you can get from another person are on the rise. So the whole institution, you know, seems kind of at an imploding point. All right, we're going to take a quick break here, um, and we'll come back. Uh, I want to hear what Dan has to say about that. We'll come uh, right back with that. All right. We are back. Uh, we're talking about love today. Uh, assisting us in our conversation are Laura Kipman, the author of Against Love, a Polemic. She joins us from Argo Studios in New York City. Dan Jones is the author of Love Illuminated, Exploring Life's Most Mystifying Subject with the Help of 50,000 Strangers. He is, in that capacity, the um, editor of the Modern Love column in the New York Times. Those 50,000 strangers are the people who who submitted their essays to him. Um, so, Dan Jones, you know, just to sort of piggyback on what Laura Kipnis was saying, um, you devote quite a bit of time or in your book to talking about the kind of the question I think that she's laying out, which is, I mean, she put it to us before as, if you have to work and work and work at this, when does the pleasure come in? Another way to look at it is how do you maintain your individuality and just seek things for yourself that you personally find fulfilling. And, and you do devote a chapter of the book to this, to maintaining individuality in marriage, up to and including such interesting gimmicks as acting a little divorced. Uh, one of my favorite <laughs> phrases from your book. But but say a little bit about that. How, what, what strategies did you wind up thinking worked a, as counteractors to, to what Laura's talking about? Yeah, well, I, you know, I don't, I don't find any grand solutions to, to any of this, you know, I see a lot of struggle and not a whole lot of solutions. And uh, you know what Laura's saying about work. Um, in the in the book, I have some fun with the amount of work we do, and you know the, the solution to a, a marriage that's grown monotonous because of routines involves, uh, you know, often at the advice of couples counselors or whoever. Um, to load up the relationship with more routines, whether it's like date nights or scheduled sex every Tuesday morning or um, hugging each other 10 times a day for 10 seconds. And these sort of, um, you know, they just seem almost pathetic in terms of, you know, how are you going to bring spark back by having more routines? Um, but the But what I have seen... You know, at least in terms of what people are claiming in their stories, um, more success in trying to build some, you know, dis distance and separation into a relationship that's gotten, you know, in this age of the sort of the, the high expectation soulmate marriage of of building um, space in, into the marriage. And at one point, um, I talk about people who either try or yearn to live in separate places. And um, a lot of people who claim to do well by that, where they have sort of side-by-side -side houses, you know, all these things get more complicated when you have children in the mix and you're shuttling children back and forth or whatever, or, sh you know, having to pay for two separate places and all of that. But it does help to have that kind of distance. And the people who are acting a little divorced 
you know, that was just sort of a trick of the mind because the the woman who had been previously very independent felt guilty when she would leave to go on a trip. And it was finding a way to get over that guilt as though she were, you know, making herself believe a little bit that she was a single mother. And the father had custody and she was going to go off. And because he had custody during his time, he had to take care of his kids and learn their teachers' names and all those sort of stereotypical things that fathers don't do when they're, you know, locked in a close relationship. Of course, of course, a lot of these conversations, um, Laura, that Dan is talking about right now, uh, or these negotiations, um, are, are, I think, almost predicated on the notion that both people uh, want pretty much the same thing, or, or at least can be, be persuaded uh, to embrace pretty much the same thing. On the other hand, uh, Dan has some terms in his book, uh, I think it's willer and runner. So you have one person who wants to will the relationship into being, and another person who kind of runs away from that. Um, and, and I think in some relationships, even if they go on a long time, people never really shake off that dichotomy. One person is a willer, trying to will everything into being great, and the other person's a runner saying, hey, maybe we should start acting a little divorced, which isn't going to go over that well with the winner with the willer so um laura as as you look at it um i mean is is equality of desire one of the one of the issues one of the sort of stumbling blocks that that you're talking about in against love you know it was so funny to me in the aftermath of writing this book that i had written a book with this title against love and so many people tried to read it as an advice book and people are just starved for advice and you know i'm like if anyone has any i applaud them but you know there just aren't solutions and when we're talking about advising people to schedule hugs or hug for 5 minutes a day or whatever it is you know is that a marriage that should we they, these people should should be trying to uphold and, and, you know, persist in. So, like, at what point do you call it quits? So one of the things I guess I was trying to do in this book was to dignify the desires of people for more, you know, to have more desire or more sex or more love or more whatever the thing that's that's missing in, in the marriage. So, you know, the equality of desire thing is obviously a huge thing and it's one of the things we hear you know severs people or and it's also a thing that's not talked about as much because i think we don't dignify the position of the person who desires more often you know they're seen as betraying the couple if they're um too demanding of sex or they look for it somewhere else or whatever so you know the the thing that I was trying to get at is that these restrictions that we put on people's lives and desires it's not just about the couple but it's like also you know dignifying this desire to get more from life you know in a larger sense as people as citizens as you know as human beings that you know restricting ourselves in these ways, um, you know, I think it's just kind of bad overall. What's life for if it's not getting more, asking for more? Um, we're going to take a call right now from Christina, and then we'll only have uh, 49,999 more calls to go to catch up to Daniel Jones. But uh, here's Christina calling in from East Hampton. Hi. Hi. How are you? Just fine. I was just wondering what Laura and Dan thought about the fact that from a very young age, these children are exposed to things like Disney movies that have happily ever after and Prince Charming. 
And as far as they're concerned, you know, relationships are always rainbows and butterflies, for lack of better words. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, when when these children grow up and they enter these relationships that don't always work out so well, it's almost like they're jaded. Um, so I'm just wondering what they what they thought about that, just being exposed to those types of things at a very young age. Well, you've both got things in your books about this. Laura, I, I, you actually uh, honed in on one, something that I, I'm a big fan of, too, which is the end of the movie The Graduate, uh, where Dustin Hoffman and Catherine Ross are sitting on, on a bus together after he's kind of hijacked her from her own wedding. I'll, I'll let you take it from there, but that seems that seems to me like maybe an antidote to what she's talking about. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, we're kind of steeped in this idea that love is the most natural thing in the world. But when you start looking around, you see what a PR program it has going for it, including these things like Disney movies. There's this constant idealization of it, you know, as as she says, past the point of, of realism. But also, if it's such a great thing, why does it need such constant promotion for itself? Um, Dan, what's your what's your reaction to that? To that idea, anyway, that the media creates these these false expectations. Well, I, I can certainly speak to the Disney uh, the Disney myth. I, you know, I held um, two college contests um, that were nationwide contests where all these students sent in essays, um, and they were very revealing. I mean, a lot of them were terribly written, but that was reve- They were even often more revealing because they weren't as um, you know polished in terms of what they were trying to present. And you could see through to what uh, what they were struggling with. And the most commonly cited influence for how they anticipated their love lives to go and how they wanted their you know future relationships to be were Disney movies. And they again and again would reference Disney movies and Aladdin and all of these. And these are kids who are living uh, sort of gritty sexual lives that. Um, you know, and they're not living anywhere near that kind of, you know, level of fantasy, and yet that's their expectation. Or even if it's, you know, not fully their expectation, it's in their heads as, you know, something that's aspirational, something to aspire to, uh, something that's pure. <laughs> and even when that doesn't resemble their everyday lives at all. So, yeah, where does that come from? The solution may be to have Lena Dunham write some Disney movies. Uh, I think maybe uh, they get a better sense of things. All right, we have to take a very short break to help us fundraise for public radio. It's a thing we do. We're going to do that. We'll be back very quickly with more of this conversation, hopefully more of your phone calls, too. Down with eyes, romantic and stupid. Down with size, down with Cupid. Brother, let's stuff that dove. Down with love. Down with love, the flowers and rice and shoes. Down with love, the root of all midnight blues. Give you that well-known pain. Take that moon and wrap it in cellophane. Down with love, let's liquidate all its friends. Moon and June and roses and rainbows ends. This whole thing about how bald eagles are monogamous, apparently... They didn't ask the bald eagle I met in a bar in Calgary because we had a lot of drinks and then... You know, upon reflection, that might have actually just been somebody in a mascot uniform. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Super producer Lydia Brown answered the phones, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Warren Beatty. For articles, show pages, and the online dating profiles of the Faith Middleton Show staff, visit WNPR.org. And now, back to Colin. First, I get what I want. Then it takes higher and higher doses 
of attention and affection to be said, keep what I've got. Sometimes that person, could be a man or a woman, actually drops off the grid and I'm heartbroken. So what starts out making me feel alive and energized ends up at worst being painful and at best exhausting. I've dedicated the rest of my life to learning how to love with love that is not contingent on the behavior of other people. I still believe in romance. Tomorrow for Valentine's Day, my husband and I will go dancing, then come home, talk about all the people we love and how much we enjoy dancing with them. He'll eat popcorn and I'll eat cheese. The weekend will take care of the rest. All right. See, that's what I call an angle of repose. Uh, they've arrived at an angle of repose. We're talking to Dan Jones. Uh, his book is Love Illuminated, Exploring Life's Most Mystifying Subject with the Help of 50,000 Strangers. He is the editor of the New York Times column Modern Love. We're also talking to Laura Kipnis, who's the author of Against Love, a Polemic. She joins us from Argo Studios in New York City. Um, Laura Kipnis, um, you know, if people uh, don't read any other part of your book, and obviously they should read it all the way through the way you intended them to, but um, they absolutely ought to read the section that begins on page uh, 84. You, you have the book there with you, right? Yes. Okay. So I'm going to – I'll set this up, but you get page 88 ready. So um, so what Laura did was she asked a, a, a lot of people, I, I gather, what can't you do because you're in a couple? And, and she got – and what what comes out is this kind of uh, simultaneously comic and and recognizable and horrifying almost a poem uh, of refresh uh, of repression it begins you can't leave the house without saying where you're going you can't not say what time you'll return you can't stay out past midnight or 11 or 10 or dinner time or not come right home after work you can't go out when the other person feels like staying home you can't go to parties alone on and on and this go this tracks over into the bathroom into the kitchen into uh, all kinds of things but but uh, but Laura pick it up for us uh, on page 88 and and maybe just uh, end up with I never Okay. You can't say the wrong thing, even in situations where there's no right thing to say. You can't use the wrong tone of voice, and you can't deny the wrong tone of voice accusation when it's made. You can't repeat yourself. You can't be overly self-dramatic. You can't know things the other person doesn't know or appear to parade your knowledge. You can't overly celebrate your own accomplishments, particularly if the mate is less successful. You can't ask for help and then criticize the mode of help or reject it. You can't not, repro- you can't not produce reassurances when asked for or, more frequently, when they're not asked for yet expected. You can't begin a sentence with, you always. You can't begin a sentence with, I never. You can't be simplistic even when things are simple. So this and this goes on and on, but it really is kind of hilarious. And these are all these aren't things that you made up. These are things that people told you, basically. Pretty much, yeah. pretty much. And what what do you think the net effect of reading all of those things, all of those rules, which are not universal? They're specific to each couple, but they do have a high recogni- recognizability quotient. What do you think the net effect of reading all that is is meant to be? Well, I just think we fall into these patterns of policing each other, and it's at these small levels about domestic issues and cleaning up the crumbs and and that kind of thing. But I think that it's the larger issue is that we're incredibly anxious about love ending because, and this is something we haven't quite gotten to, that there's this underlying ideology of love in our times that love is this crucial thing to a complete self. And so if you sense on, you know, in any kind of way that your partner 
is, you know, about to take flight or is dissatisfied or just not giving you every iota of fulfillment that you think is your due, um, you become incredibly anxious. So it's this anxiety that leads us to policing each other and policing each other's whereabouts and, you know, who you talk to at the party or who you're emailing with or, you know, so it's just like at every moment, this mutual surveillance, uh, you know, one of these self-appointed <laughs> Pinkerton detectives. It does seem like that movie, The Lives of Others, doesn't it? Well, uh, Dan Jones, uh, please promise me, please tell me that in all these 50,000 submissions that you read, plus your own documenting of your own marriage, you've, you've got another way of looking at all that. <laughs> Well, um, I mean, I guess I don't. Most of the relationships I hear about are not that cramped, um, and not that, you know, not policed to that degree. I agree that you know I understand that's a, you know, a long list of what different people have said. But I, I'm sensing that there's more freedom in most relationships than um, than that. But you know, in, in I know we're talking about love, but I, I think what I hear from a lot of people in terms of what they need and what they fear losing is stability. And, um, you know, they have difficult lives and maybe difficult jobs, and they have their, you know, responsibilities to their children and all of that. And it's this um, it's sort of a paralyzing fear of, of all of that being disrupted and messed up at the cost of other, you know, people, um, whether it's their children or their extended family or whatever. And it's that, that disruption more than um, the, the less quantifiable, you know, thing called love that, that they, you know, fear when, they, when things start to go south. Although one conclusion I would draw from reading your essays and, and to a certain degree your book too is that there is sort of a thec- second law of thermodynamics at work here that life is fundamentally disruptive. And I don't know, I'm even thinking of you published an editor, uh, an essay recently by one of my former editors at Mademoiselle, Val Frankel, which is talks about, you know, having endured a hor- the horrible loss of the stability of her first marriage when her husband died very, very young and right. then piecing together a different kind of stability with a different kind of person after that. I mean, it's, it, it seems to me, and I, I'm going to go Kipnisian on you, that, <laughs> that the more that you cling to stability, probably the more that you're inviting some kind of massive destabilization. Oh, I'm sure that's true, um, but that doesn't stop people from from yearning for that. You know, I just um, the love is one one part of it. The sex is another part of it. Um, but that that feeling, you know, these these fantasies so often that start us start us down this path. Um, a big element of that fantasy is, um, you know, the the sipping tea on the porch when you're in your 70s and having someone who can care for you and you can care for them um, beyond, you know, passion and after your children are grown and all of that, um, that is a, is a dream that a lot of people really cling to and yearn for. Um, and Laura Kipnis, let's talk about we, our time is limited and we, we need to talk about the Bill Clinton in the room here. I mean, a lot of these anxieties, you look at a lot of these anxieties through the prism of infidelity that that really are the struggle that we have to be monogamous. Uh, the invitations of infidelity are just maybe a giant. And would you say sort of, uh, for the most part, unacknowledged thing as people navigate through their love relationships? For uh, for the most part, and I think that the 
issue, I mean, yes, people yearn for stability, but we're split. I mean, we, on the one hand, want stability, and then we feel confined and imprisoned by it because we also have these desires that don't fit into the, 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 this form. And so um, I guess I'm interested in the split or the ambivalences in honoring both sides of it. So, you know, as far as the college students, people want who are on the outside of love and coupledom desperately want in. And then people who are on the inside are yearning for, you know, to break free and, you know, jump somebody, you know, they see on the subway and, and that kind of thing. So... And I wouldn't want to quash that desiring side of ourselves, you know, that's the desires aren't, uh, you know, socially acceptable. Dan, I mean, just to go back to sort of that being a little bit divorced. Um, so, so that addresses the problem of the woman who wants to go to Paris, maybe by herself for a week and just do whatever. All right. And so that's one kind of wanting a thing that that isn't necessarily presenting itself all that easily in, in coupledom. But then the other another thing that people kind of want is that just hit of pure oxygen and adrenaline uh, that you have with something that's new. And of course, with something forbidden, it's even <laughs> more adrenalizing. And 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 that seems to be kind of wired into a lot of people that that they want that. And there doesn't seem to be a way to get it without destabilizing this relationship. Right. Well, exactly. Yeah. No, no one has figured out how to have both. Well, there have been a bunch of movies recently that have take your premise of the acting a little bit divorced a bit further. Like you get a hall pass. Is wasn't that one of them? Or you you get to have the week of pretending that you're single to the point of sleeping with other people, which I guess is probably not part of the your idea of acting a little divorced. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't my idea, but it was um, the writer Rachel Zucker's idea. Um, you know, I, people come up with all kinds of arrangements and potential solutions and there's Dan Savage's acting monogamish where you <laughs> uh you know um have an an open relationship uh and you know the and and that can work you know there there's certainly plenty of stories where that can work there are all kinds of complicating um factors and bruised emotions and all of that i think it's really really hard to buck social conventions, and um, I think you know those changes are are very difficult changes to sort of do things without uh, or despite societal judgment and all of that. But I you know I do think the experimentation is um, is going on <laughs> in yeah, all kinds I of different so. relationships, and uh, we're pressing the boundaries and trying to figure out what how you can get all your your needs met. You know, with mixed results. Although it seems to me, Laura, that, you know, even hearing about that kind of experimentation, it has a little, still a little bit of the ring of the hug appointment or the sex uh, yeah. date night or something like that. That one of the things that people are seeking is Dionysian instead of Apollonian. You know, <laughs> it's not it's chaotic. It's not structured. Uh, that, yes. that if you can impose any structure on it, it's not it. Right. Yeah, I got a lot of mail from people who were in these polyandrous kinds of relationships or they were swingers. So they had these appointed nights where they went together to the, you know, church. And, you know, a lot of these people were religious people who were in these open marriages. And it did always smack to me of something overly rule bound. Mm -hmm, and I yeah. was in a way trying to applaud this like experimentation of the affair of infidelity where you don't know what's going to happen and you're experimenting with different 
different emotions and structures and and you know time goes out the window and 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 everything so yeah the, the that anarchic desirous impulse that is what gets quashed in the monogamous marriage uh, you know I think finds these outlets in these illicit affairs but not so much in the thing like polyandry or the uh, you know rule bound affair it, it's funny you say that because that in, in most of the open marriage stories I've heard, rules are paramount. You know? mm-hmm. the, the only way to do it is to have rules about you know, where you can be with the other person and when you would do it and ha- whether you can have sex and how you use protection. And they say the only way to do it successfully is through this whole series of rules, which does seem counter to the whole idea of openness. Yeah. And, I, you know, I do think, you know, as we've both been saying, people just don't know how to uh, handle their love lives. And so I'm not trying to mock people who are experimenting with these these different um, possibilities. But, yeah, the the rules intruding seem to defeat the purpose. And, we, but the rules often have to do with, the, with honesty, too. Like, uh, the, it's the deceit that can be the most corrosive. And um, the, the, the rules often seem to be in place to prevent deceit from from creeping into it. You know, we have some... Uh, first of all, we're just getting warmed up here. I feel like we're really getting warmed <laughs> up right now, and I have to impose a horrible rule, which is that we have to go. Uh, but we've been talking to Laura Kipnis. Her book is Against Love, a polemic. Read it. You'll get some surprises. You'll get even more surprises with... Lo- well, I don't know. It's the same amount of surprises with Love Illuminated, Exploring Life's Most Mystifying Subject with the Help of 50,000 Strangers by Daniel Jones. Thank you. Thank you. We gotta go. I fell in love in the front seat of a 56 Ford at a drive-in movie, sliding over toward a girl in shorts and necking a little on a bench seat, no gear shift in the middle. She was young and eager. It didn't take much to slip her in gear and let out the clutch, but the beautiful bench where we performed our feats has been replaced by two bucket seats and a brake lever, gear shift, and armrest between me and the girl I love best, which is sensible and safer, perhaps, two people restrained by safety straps. But if safety were all that people thought of, then who would ever fall in love? Gerson, Gerson, watch out, Gerson! I get your point, but can't you have love and airbags? Ah, oh, this date sucks.